you're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. I'm here with my co-host, Monica. What's up? Hey, everyone. So today, I'm so excited. We actually didn't know what book we were going to be talking about today. And our guest walked to the door, and I recognized it not by its title, but by its massive size. (laughs) (laughs) We are back with Black Reconstruction. And yeah, it's going to be amazing. You might remember we have talked about this book before. I think it was our second episode with Nathan and Debbie. And today we're talking about it with an amazing organizer, Frank Chapman. Uh, He's a longtime civil rights organizer, part of the black freedom struggle. And he's going to talk more about his experiences. And today he organized with the Chicago Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression. I got that right, right? Racist and political repression. Racist and political repression. (laughs) How are you doing today, Frank? Yeah, 90%. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm all right. I'm right. Thank you for coming and for talking about this book. Um, let's start with just, can you tell us about who you are, what do you do, and why? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, I, uh, I'm a revolutionary. I always like to keep that right up front. And I, uh, I begin my development as such uh, when I was in my early 20s. Uh, I was wrongfully convicted in 1961 for uh, allegedly murdering a shopkeeper, a white shopkeeper, and uh, I was uh, uh, convicted and sentenced to life and 50 years in prison. And uh, I would have died in prison had it not been for the movement. Uh, Happy accident is that uh, at the time that I went into into the joint, was at the same time that the Black Liberation Movement was picking up steam, you know. And uh, like most black people in America at that time, I was very much affected by that movement, you know, from almost the first time I walked into the prison situation. And, uh, and you know, I, I had resolved going in the gate because the prison that I went in had a, had a sign up over it saying, all who enter here, Leave all hope behind. It was taken from Dante's, Dante's Inferno, Thirteen Cycles of Hell, and um, I refused to leave all hope behind. You know, I uh, I wanted to fight. I knew the only way I was going to get out was to fight, but I didn't know how I was going to fight, and I didn't know who I was going to fight with. And all the time I was searching and reading, and you know, trying to uh, 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 get a handle on, uh, you know intellectually get a handle on what what my situation was and and, and how I was going to deal with it. But this was the first book I read that really inspired me and grabbed me. And it was by W.B. Du Bois. And it was Souls of Black Folk. And I pat my foot all through that book. And there were occasions in which I cried, you know. Now I could mention some other books that I read that inspired me in that manner, but they're not about uh, black history, you know. Les Miserables inspired me in that manner, about Victor Hugo. Uh, but this book was about me, you know, and and my people. And uh, this, it was in the title, Souls of Black Folk. And so I, I fell in love with Du Bois, you know. As a, as a writer, I, I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't know nobody black had this kind of scope, you know. Uh, as a writer, uh, you know, as, a, uh, as an educator, and so I was just really uh, overwhelmed with him, and I wanted to read everything that he, that he ever had ever had ever wrote. So I started reading his books, you know, and a lot of them were smuggled in by a, uh, a black school teacher who was uh, in the prison school named Nathaniel Berger. He uh, he he smuggled some books in, uh, and uh, uh, he you know he could bring books in. He was a school teacher; they wouldn't say nothing to him. So so we. He brought books in to me, and you know they they didn't know what he was bringing in, so he brought in. Uh, uh, he kept asking, me, "What's next?" And I, I tell him, well, "Bring uh, 
um, uh, bring black folk then and now. And he brought that in. And I said, so he just brought them in, you know. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in, prison, in prison reading in prison. this book? I, 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 um, okay, that's, that's this was, new history that's, that's of like. I, that's what I was missing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, as I said earlier, I had been uh, studying law and whatnot. And we were suing the prison uh, for uh, the civil rights violations I just talked to you about. And so we went in under these statutes called uh, the Civil War Statutes, uh, section, it's, it's uh, Title 42 United States Code, sections 1981 through 1985. And so I'd been, I'd been reading that before I read Reconstruction. What I didn't know until I read Black Reconstruction were these, were these statutes originated during the Civil War and Reconstruction period. And I, I, I begin to see that uh, the democratic advances that was made during that period, you know, uh, had either been taken had been taken away from us, uh, like the, the, the right to vote, you know, the franchise. But not only that, uh, there were laws that said that uh, the states, the, you know, at that time you were talking about the slave states, that that a state could not take any federally protected right away from you, you know. Uh, and that if they did, that the government could intervene and make sure that you had those rights enforced. And so uh, uh, those laws had not been enforced for damn near 90 years when I was reading this, you know. And in fact, we were trying to get them enforced in, in, in the prison situation. That's why we were suing in court. So it showed me that, uh, that you know, democratic gains that we made during that period were taken away. And uh, not only were they taken away, that they were taken away, you talked to, to me earlier about violence, they were taken away violently, you know, that the Reconstruction governments that were legally established through constitutional conventions and what have you were all overthrown. And they were overthrown by means, we'll get into that later in more detail, but they were all overthrown by means of political terrorism, you know. And so these are things that I immediately took away from the book, you know, and, and my prison experience helped me to uh, see that more sharply because we were engaged as prisoners in a struggle for our civil rights, for our human rights, you know. And we were using those statutes, ironically, we were using those statutes that were created during the Civil War mm -hmm. and during the Reconstruction era. Um, so let's, let's dive in. Can you tell us more about what, uh, what this book covers? Um, yeah, what, what is... Uh, what you already have mentioned, political, there's political terrorism that's taking place, right? But so talking through, like, what what do you think was both possible and what were people trying to achieve, okay. and then mm -hmm. what happened? Okay, but what the book covers is it, it, it covers the uh, um, it starts off talking about labor. Uh, it starts off talking about black labor. So it covers the uh, the the African slave trade. It shows, it shows the relationship between African slavery and the development of the capitalist market. It shows how African slavery provided the financial underpinnings uh, for the Industrial Revolution. It shows that by the time the cotton gin was invented, that, uh, that, that it wouldn't have been no invention of the cotton gin. It wouldn't have been no Industrial Revolution without the massive capital that was created through uh, the African slave trade. So it talks about the, 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 the value uh, of, 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 of black labor to international commerce, you know, to not just to uh, 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 the development, economic development of the colonies, but to world commerce. That if you that if you take slavery out of world commerce, that it wouldn't have been no world commerce. It, that it was very much rooted in in slavery. So that's what he talks about in the very first chapter, you know. And then he also, and then in the next chapter, he well. He also talks about uh, the conditions of the black workers, you know, uh, on the plantations and whatnot, uh, and, and and he compares that with the conditions of the workers in the factories and so forth and so on. And he shows where the black workers were, uh, 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 you know, super exploited, you know, that they were uh, uh, just barely kept, just given the bare subsistence of living, you know. And, and that they were worked from sun up to sundown, and uh, that this went on for centuries. You know, uh, they were uh, 
they were clothed in rags and they were fed uh, uh, not very good food, you know. Uh, and so he, uh, so he describes those, those conditions. And then he talks about the, uh, the white worker, you know. And uh, the way he talks about the white worker is that he talks about how as far as the marketplace goes, the white worker as a commodity was no different than the black worker as a commodity, that they were both treated as commodities to be bought and sold in the marketplace. The difference being that the black worker uh, did not sell himself. You know, he was sold by another. He was sold as property, as chattel. You know, he was counted among the cattle and 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 and, and the beast of burden on the plantation. Um, the white worker was free to sell himself into slavery for eight hours a day, fourteen hours a day, whatever he could get at that time. So he makes those distinctions. But then he also sh shows where in the South, where in the South you had uh, a very unique economic situation that you had a large class of white peasants, you know, who were uh, small farmers, you know, and who were not just small, but who were impoverished small farmers. And he shows where as a class that sometimes they did very, very bad, you know. Uh, they, they literally starved, you know, uh, and uh, that there was no incentive to keep up their, their health mm -hmm. because they, they were economically of no value to the planter. Mm -hmm. And he shows where 300,000 property holders who were planters, that how they used this situation, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, perpetuate slavery, you know. And he, and he shows how uh, there grew up this natural resentment and hatred of these small landowners against the big landowners, against the planters, but that it was often vented, you know, by them being told that because of the color of their skin, because they were white, that they were better than the slave and whatnot. And also they were used as overseers, they was used as jailers, they was used as slave catchers, they was used to run the paddy wagons, and so forth and so on. So he shows these, these uh, uh, inter-class relationships and how it was all based on keeping the slave in bondage and how the, uh, the 300,000 slaveholders, who are about 1% one, of the population, if you take, uh, if you take five, 5 million whites, and four million blacks, that gives you nine million people in the South. And out of that nine million, you had 300,000 slaveholders. So not a very large percentage of the population. So the wealth was very concentrated, very concentrated in the hands of a few. And, 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 and it just, you know, ruthlessly uh, exploited uh, everybody that wasn't in, wasn't in that few. Uh, you know, when you, when you plant cotton, you exhaust the soil, right? You know that. Okay, so now these plantations constantly had to expand. So guess what? When they had to expand, who did they sweep aside? You know, the, the dirt farmers, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the the Native Americans, the, the indigenous people, you know. Uh, whoever was sitting on that land, they, 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 they took it. They took Texas, you know. Uh, and and you know we could go on and on and on and on you know so this 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 so so Du Bois shows how this expansion this inherent expansion of the of 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 of, of slavery where they needed more land you know uh, after they didn't rape the land they needed more land he shows how this was also a factor in bringing about the Civil War because when the, after the Louisiana Purchase which was called by the revolt in Haiti. Incidentally, after the Louisiana Purchase, uh, and you know things started going westward, mm -hmm. and they had the Homestead Act and all of that stuff, uh, the slaveholders saw an opportunity for infinite expansion, and so every new state that came into the Union, they were fighting to make that a slave state, mm -hmm. you know, and so you had this this contradiction between the free soilers and the planters, you know, and uh, the way black people figured in that was it was their responsibility, people like Frederick Douglass and others, you know, uh, it was their responsibility to fight, you know, uh, on the side of the free soilers. 
and, and, and make sure that these new territories would not become slave territories, you know. That's what the thing with John Brown was all about in the, uh, in the struggle around Kansas and Nebraska, you know. Uh, the Civil War started before the Civil War started, you know. It started with the fight against slaveholders trying to expand into these new territories. And one of the uh, heroes uh, of that endeavor was Shears Green and John Brown, you know, uh, some of the heroes of that, of, that, of, that, of, that, of that era. So Du Bois talks about all of that. And, uh, and, and, and then, then he, uh, I, kind of, I kind of morphed off from the white labor to the planter because that's, that's actually the next chapter is the planner class. And so uh, I, just, I just dealt with both of them <laughs> and didn't realize I was doing it until I did it, you know. But um, uh, so, so now you got, the, you got the planner class in there too uh, and, 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 and how. So he shows these dynamics between white labor, black labor, mm. and the planter. Mm. And he, 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 he puts it in, he woves that into a historical pattern to show how uh, these developments that I just mentioned in terms of the uh, uh, contradictions between the free sawlers and the planters, you know, uh, you know, really set the stage for, for the uh, Civil War. Mm -hmm. You mentioned John Brown. Can you explain um, for our listeners who John Brown is? Well, John Brown was a, uh, uh, was a freedom fighter, uh, a, a white freedom fighter, you know, and uh, accepted as such by, uh, uh, by black people in the abolitionist movement. Uh, who worked with him, you know, and his vision was this. His vision was that uh, slavery was not going to come to an end peacefully. His vision was that the slaveholders had to be violently overthrown and that uh, the only way that could be done is that an uprising of the slaves took place in the South to violently overthrow them. And he knew that the slaves were at a tremendous disadvantage in terms of making that uprising happen. So his vision was to uh, seize weapons, uh, go, into the, go into the hills, go into the, into the mountains, and then, uh, you know, like Harriet Tubman was agitating around the Underground Railroad, and Harriet Tubman was, was with him incidentally on this, that they would instead bring slaves into the hills, you know, like they were already doing in, 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 in some places, particularly in the, in the West Indies to bring them into the hills to fight the planters, you know, because he did not have any faith whatsoever in the United States government ever ending slavery. He felt that it had to be done by violent means. Well, he was right about that. It had to be done by violent means. Um, so that's, that's my capsule explanation to John yeah. Brown. And can you tell us a little bit about so you talked about the um, how chapter one is around you know the value of black labor, and then you started getting into the expansion of land that then led to the Civil War, um, and and you know with Western expansion and the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, can you now tell us a little bit about the next sort of pivotal moment that happened in this book um, after the the Civil War ended? The Civil War. Can I just briefly mention why it came to an end? Because it could it could have went on for several other several more years, you know, because uh, Lincoln had a bunch of lousy generals, you know, who uh, really had no interest in uh, in getting rid of slavery at all, you know. Uh, there were a few who who were, you know, uh, who wanted to use uh, uh, slaves as uh, as an instrument of war, you know, like Sherman, uh, and then there were some who who who. Like you know, he, there was one Marxist general by the name of Joseph Wiedemeyer, who uh, who saw the revolutionary character of the war, or the potential revolutionary character of it, and who was in favor of the slaves taking up arms against their uh, former masters. So what made things happen was uh, Frederick Douglass did a lot of agitation, and so did the rest of the abolitionist movement, in terms of getting black soldiers into the military. And uh, that happened. That happened. Several hundred thousand were finally gotten in. Uh, black regiments like the 54th out of Massachusetts was started. And that represented a decisive turning point in the Civil War. And in fact, uh, Du Bois contends that that plus the general strike of the slaves themselves brought this to a close. The general strike was 
here's what happened. Uh, you see a Union Army coming in to slave territory. Uh, you see them, uh, 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 you know, shooting at the master's house and so forth and so on. So what do you do? You leave. <laughs> you, you get the hell out of there. You know, it's time to go. <laughs> Not time to pick more cotton. <laughs> you know, it's time to go, and that's exactly what happened. And Du Bois describes this here. In fact, there's a chapter called the General Strike, and it's a very decisive chapter in terms of bringing the Civil War to an end, uh, and also the getting all of these slaves who were leaving the plantation became what was known as contraband, and they also became what later on was Union soldiers. And so uh, one led right into the other. And, then, and, and when that happened, the war came to an end. You know, uh, There was no way that the South could win. Well, there was no way they could win anyway, but it could have went on longer. You know, So once this war was brought to an end, what was the major question of the day? Right, that's that's where you that's where you want me to go. Uh, the major question of the day is, and Lincoln, you know, he dealt with it very uh, clumsily. What are we going to do with these freed people? You know, there's four million people who uh, have been in bondage for 250 years. What the hell are we going to do with them? You know, um, and so the radical Republicans at that time, you know, like. Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, people like that, uh, they were of the position, well, you know, these guys who who fired on Fort Sumter, uh, who led this, this, this civil war, this rebellion of slaveholders, these guys were traitors, and they should be dealt with as such. We should take all of their land, you know, we should completely expropriate them, and we should divide that land up among the slaves and create a real democracy in the South, you know, uh, a democracy where uh, uh, freed people would have an opportunity to develop as full citizens of this country, you know. And uh, and then you had the other Reconstructionists who, well, they were not really Reconstructionists. You had other people who were saying, well, how about we repatriate them? How about we uh, send them back to Africa? How about we... Uh, uh, well, we already had sent some back to Africa, right? Back in the 1820s, 1821, between 1820 and 1825 under President Monroe. Then we sent, uh, yeah, we sent some, some black folks to Africa, and, and we, we call it Liberia. And we sent them to Liberia. Oh, yeah, Liberia. Let's, how about sending them to Liberia, you know? Uh, so, uh, so you had this going on. Uh, that never really took hold, you know? Uh, what was on the ground, and what was on the ground is important. What was on the ground was you had a couple of hundred thousand armed former slaves. That's what was on the ground. They were still in the Union Army, you know. You had the Union League being formed in the South, which also was an armed militia of black folks, you know. So uh, the Radical Reconstructionists, they saw what they needed to do. They needed to take and keep these people on the ground and put the former slaveholders in their place, you know. Uh, where land had been seized, it should be kept, you know. And uh, where it was not seized, uh, then maybe land should be given. Now, there was whole sections in South Carolina, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Carolina Sea Islands off of the coast that was, that was seized by former slaves. And they were they were already setting up their own idea of government and whatnot. So uh, you might say that there was the beginning of self determination in the black belt. It was already starting to happen, you know. Um, Does that include like the Gullah Islands? The Gullah Islands, yeah. And in fact, in fact, that's, they 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 still speak Gullah down right, there, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, they they they, they uh, they're still there, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so. Um, so this was, uh, this was what was going on. And, um, so it was an, an important period because around 1867, the radical reconstructionists kind of like carried the day. I mean, Lincoln had been assassinated. 
this guy Andrew Johnson, who, uh, who 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 came in behind him, was really a wimp, you know. Uh, I, I, a legacy, yeah, yeah, yeah he, he he wasn't nothing, you know. Um, and and you know he was really uh, uh, sympathetic to the planters, you know. He tried to give them their land back, you know. Uh, and all they had to do was make a, a swear out an oath that they would never fight against the United States government again, and everything would be restored, you know. Um, but he didn't carry the day at that moment. At, the mo at that moment, the, uh, the the radical reconstructions carried the day, and so they started putting through these reconstruction acts, which is what I was referring to earlier when I said the, uh, the so-called uh, you know Civil War laws and acts and so forth and so on, and. Uh, you know, the 14th Amendment was one of, well, the, you know, the 13th Amendment had already gone by, but the 14th Amendment was one of them about equal protection of the law. And the 15th Amendment, which was about uh, the franchise, you know, was uh, the most critical because this amendment would allow the formerly enslaved people to vote in their own governments where they constitute the majority in the area, you know. So, uh, in South Carolina, they were a significant majority. In Louisiana, they, there was there was a, there was a lot of majority counties. Same is true in Mississippi. So in these states, uh, blacks started gaining political power at a at a rapid at a rapid rate. You know, within in a matter of years, uh, they had to have constitutional conventions in those states. You know, and adopt a constitution. And if you want to see the most progressive forward. Uh, leaning constitutions in the history of the country. Look at those. Those are the constitutions that created public education. Those are the constitutions that took uh, property qualifications away from the voting, away from voting. You know, uh, before those constitutions came into play, only rich white men could vote. You know, uh, you had to have property. You know, and so, uh, you know, I mean, Andrew Jackson challenged it to some extent. But in during the radical reconstruction, they dealt with it outright, you know, and public education. You know, every revolution that has taken place in the twentieth century has put great emphasis on literacy. Right? Mm -hmm. In in Cuba, in China, you name it. What happened during the Civil War? Same thing. Mm -hmm. The Civil War had a lot of manifestations and characteristics of what a what a modern revolution looks like. Mm -hmm. Because they uh they did this. They had uh, they had literacy programs. They had school moms coming down. They had uh, they set up schools and whatnot. They taught a lot of people, a lot of people, how to read and write. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, this was important. You know, um, the Civil War also coincided historically with the Paris Commune, which was the first time that workers in the history of the country, I mean, in the history of the world, had tried to. Uh, established a socialist government. Uh, in, a, in a book that I'm writing called uh, 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 Marx and Lenin's Perspectives on the Struggle for Black Liberation and Socialism, I make these comparisons. I show where the literacy program that the Paris Commune tried to get into effect in, in, a, in, in the few weeks that it was in power was almost identical with the one that they had in the South, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that, uh, that, you know, they, they shared many common revolutionary characteristics. Uh, the difference was that the Reconstruction era lasted longer, you know, and so in terms of having an impact upon the modern world, it had one that we, we might not have appreciated so much had W.B. Du Bois not written this book, Black Reconstruction. Um, it had a tremendous political impact, you know, uh, because for the first time in human history, you had a poor, oppressed, class of people, you know, who rose to power and maintained the whole that power uh, for a number of years. And why did they hold it for a number of years? And I'm going to say it very simply, because they were armed. Because they were armed. Uh, you can't supplant the criticism of weapons with the weapon of criticism, you know. They were armed. They could shoot back, you know. Uh, in South Carolina, the Ku Klux Klan was eliminated. Did you know that? Yeah. They were totally eliminated. 
And why were they eliminated? They were eliminated because South Carolina, of all of the southern states, is the only one in black reconstruction where Du Bois uses the term dictatorship of the black proletariat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while you, you, know, you could argue with that from a Marxist-Leninist perspective, uh, because, uh, you know, there, there was not really a, a proletariat working class taking power. But he wasn't just talking about that. So he, he later on he, he rectified. He took that took the proletariat out of there. But he didn't take dictatorship out of there. You know, because you had what it was, it was the dictatorship of a modern bourgeois government. But for black people, you know. And 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 so some of the things that they did, they 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 tried, they suspended the habeas corpus. When they come to dealing with the Klan, they would not give them, uh, 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 you know, the, the rights that, that normally go to citizens. You know, uh, they they arrested them. You know, uh, they 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 took away their rights. They denied them the right to exist. You cannot exist. You know, and uh, uh, so the Klan didn't come back in the in the force in, in in the Carolinas and pretty much in the whole country until 1915. Thanks to uh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, but because uh, he, you know, he 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 played a big role in that. But I just wanted to bring that bring that bring that fact out, yeah. you know, that uh, that black people had in 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 in, in, uh, in South Carolina dictatorial powers, which they used uh, to eliminate the Klan. Very important. Is this book, so this is sort of a two-part question depending on how the first part goes, but is this a book about what black people were trying to do or is this a book about why it didn't work? Does that make sense? Yeah, like what, a, what happened? And if it, like what, because I'm wondering, like does he offer, like does he have yeah. an analysis in terms of like what black folk not not necessarily like what they should have done, but just like what got in the way. Well, what got in the way was what we call today monopoly capitalism, um, and he talks about that too. See, Du Bois does not leave that question unanswered. Yeah. It's not he doesn't leave it hanging. He gives you a very clear and definite answer. What happened is this, according to Du Bois, and and all. Subsequent historical research kind of verifies this, and that is that what the Civil War did, in addition to getting rid of slavery, what it did, it was a hell of an impetus. It was also the first modern war. You know, it had all the characteristics of modern wars that came after it. You know, it, it, a lot of a lot of features that you see in World War One and World War Two was right there in the Civil War. They created submarines. They, they they created armored cars, you know, and they were they were they, they were they were bringing the country into a new age that it hadn't seen before. But economically, what it was doing was also see up until the Civil War, you know, capitalism had been predominantly competitive, you know, and uh, it was mainly about the exportation of 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 commodities and so forth and so on. Uh, what happened during the Civil War is that uh, banks and railroads and things like that became trustified. Uh, they uh, they became capital became more and more concentrated in the hands of less and less people. Some of the uh, what later on became known as as America's sixty richest families. Some of them emerged during this period, you know, like the Mellons and so forth and so on. Uh, Jay Gold, and what how were they how were they moving? What, what was what were some of the main things that they were doing? Well, one of the main things that they were doing was railroads. That was the main thing they were doing was mines, you know. Now, as far as the railroads go, you know, they wouldn't give the slaves forty acres and a mule, right? They wouldn't they wouldn't they, they started instead of giving land to the slaves who had been freed, they started taking land away. Mm -hmm. They gave millions and millions of acres of land to the railroads. So now we get a clear picture here. Who's in control? Yeah. Now the planter class has been replaced. The, the, the northern merchants have been replaced by the modern industrial 
capitalist, monopolist, mm -hmm. imperialist. Okay. That's who they've been replaced by. And so the the first the first expression, you know, imperialism is about expansion. Conquering new territories. What's the first new territories that they conquered? The West. Mm -hmm. The West. Who was the first uh, 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 and foremost victims of U.S. imperialism? The Native Americans, you know. And, of course, the wildlife, you know, the buffaloes and so forth and so on. But they ruthlessly. Now, what happened to all them homesteaders and, 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 and people like that that they, get, that they gave land to? What happened to the 1848ers that went out there when they, they when they had gold in California and so forth and so on? Well, if they if they were on railroad land, they just simply moved moved them off. They they they, they created what they call eminent domain. Yeah. And eminent domain means that uh, uh, you know they could dispossess you and your land because they're bringing a railroad through that, you know, or a telegraph, uh, 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 you know, and and, and and so forth and so on. So now. This was uh, 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 this was very very important, you know, and uh, these were these were developments that uh, I think answers your question. Mm -hmm. These were developments that sort of made it well virtually impossible for Reconstruction to finish because what did they need to happen in the South? Uh, like I say, the first victims of of, 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 of of U.S. imperialism were the indigenous people of the West. But it was also the South. It was also the South. Because now what they did, they created a system of absentee landlordism like no other country had ever seen. You know. They took over these plantations. You know. Uh, the guy, the, what was really in control of the plantations in the South that had been the big estates and whatnot was the banks, you know. And what was really in control of, uh, of the land distribution was the banks, you know. And uh, this became a situation that um, where you might say the South was kind of like colonized. Mm -hmm. They were colonized. They looted the South. They robbed them, you know. And what was most favorable to this type of robbery was to take the African-American people who were beginning to form a, a democracy, you know, using some of the highest standards of bourgeois democracy, to take them and put them as much back into slavery as they could put them. To make a deal with the old planter class, you know, that this is what would happen, you know, and, and and so that's what they did. Now, this is what was consistent with their ideas of imperial expansion, you know, was to reduce the South to a debtor status, you know, and to create sharecropping, you know, a, a, a damn near like a feudal system where you have a, 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 a big landlord and then you have people on the land that are sharecropping. And so that's what they did. They created a sharecropping system. Now, what kind of political system do you need to enforce this type of an arrangement? You need, we're going now from the dictatorship of the black proletariat or the dictatorship, the bourgeois dictatorship of, uh, of black people uh, in North Carolina to another kind of dictatorship. Dictatorship of the landlords and the capitalists. The landlords and the capitalists. Um, Du Bois doesn't get into it in depth in this book, but he does talk about it in the book that, uh, in another book that he wrote around the same time. In fact, he wrote he wrote this book first. He wrote The World in Africa in, I think, 1947, 48. He wrote this book in 1935. But in 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 in, in the World in Africa, he kind he kind he kind of deals with it. Uh, what um, what they do? Uh, they create a situation where. I kind of lost my thought there for a minute. Uh, what was I saying? You were talking about how they robbed the South, um, and then you were saying that what kind of political system do you need? That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. Okay. 
he talks about the collapse of culture in, in, in the world in Africa. What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about the rise of fascism. Mm -hmm. But at, at one part of that book, he made a statement that, 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 that I, 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 I didn't understand because I, I'd read that before I read this. And that is that already in the South, fascism was rising. That already in the South, they had created black codes. Already in the South, they had created a penal system that was had like concentration camps, like Tucker's Farm, you know, and different other uh, prison farms. They had prison farms in the South that they ran like concentration camps, you know. So he, so he's pointing all this out. He's pointing out that that, that they had a eugenics movement, which was sterilizing black people and so forth and so on, you know. So he's saying that that fascist tendencies and whatnot were clearly there. Well, you could go a little bit further than that. You could say that there was an open terroristic dictatorship in the South of the planners in cahoots with the Northern capitalists. It was that. In other words, the Northern capitalists, they turned their back on it. The Negro problem is your problem, they told them. You deal with it. And the way that they deal with it, dealt with it was open terror. Now, lynching became an instrument of social control, you know, uh, almost like a Roman festivity. They would, they would lynch people and have uh, uh, thousands and thousands of folks from all throughout the countryside come down and watch the lynching. They would burn people. They would cut people's private parts off and put them in butcher shop windows, you know. They did all this, okay. So now this is how they, their idea of how to maintain social control, you know. Uh, if a white person made an accusation, and particularly a white woman, made an accusation against a black person, it automatically meant death or jail. Automatically. If a white person was coming down the sidewalk or the ramp or whatever the hell it might be, you had to step off and let them by, you know. So they created a, 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 an apartheid system. In this country, now we call we didn't have no problem calling apartheid in, in Africa fascism, but we seem to have a problem with calling it that here. They create an apartheid system called Jim Crow, which in all of its essential features is no damn different from what they had going on in South Africa. In fact, South Africa learned from this country. Du Bois talks about all that, real straight up, real plain, you know, and that this was the beginning. This was the beginning of the creation of an imperial system worldwide that would do these same things to people of the whole world. Because while this here was going on in, in, in the South, now, now let's go into the, into the 1980s and the 1990s. While this was going on in the South in the 80s and so forth and so on, I'm going to read that passage from you in, in, the, in the end. While this was going on, what was going on in India? What was going on in China? Huh? The same thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were bringing in Chinese slaves on the West Coast. I'm talking about in the 1880s. The word Shanghai was, was synonymous with the word kidnap. They were lynching Chinese on the West Coast and Japanese. Yeah. And, and white workers who were trying to, uh, 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 you know, get uh, industrial unions started, like IWW people, like jo jo Joe Hill, you know. Uh, so this is what it, imperialism is on the scene now. Spanish-American war getting ready to break out. The United States is getting ready to become a major imperial power. So what I'm really struck with right now is when I was first introduced to this book and its importance, it was in the content, context of organizing, even before Mike Brown and Ferguson, uh, organizing around police and prisons. And there's, I think in the left more and more, particularly in, in sort of like black struggle, a recognition that the 13th Amendment isn't didn't actually stop slavery um and that and that this book it helps us understand what happened to re 
scribe, re-inscribe black people into bondage. And you say that, right? Like that, that it doesn't actually end um, that system. Uh, 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 it doesn't abolish bondage. But as you're talking, I'm like, oh, this is so, it's way bigger than just putting black people into back into bondage. Uh, I mean, I was hearing you talk about like, this is a, they, ha they, and it, it's, and it's more than a moment of political power building. It's, it's, there ha white white supremacy is having to reinforce it, its political monopoly, its economic monopoly, and its social monopoly all at the same time. So it, there's something that it has carried through since slavery that's more than just black people being contained and controlled. I think you were talking about this is when imperialism really takes off. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk more. That's what I'm hearing, and I want to make sure that, that that's like the right takeaway. And I'm wondering if you can kind of ground us in today like what what is this what is similar about the relationship of black labor like there isn't really a planter class anymore um but there's absolutely like that elite class and so what what's what is it like today um you know what uh given that reconstruction sort of ended and white people were able to to through open terror right through economic monopolies through you know uh, disrupting, you know, democracy, we're able to kind of stop it um, and reverse some of the grounds that were made. Like, what has, what are we dealing with today that's similar to under slavery? All right. Well, let's start with the uh, police and prisons. Uh, you know, we talked, we talked about, um, you know, uh, black political power, uh, particularly in South Carolina. Uh, having the ability to uh, uh, use the police system in a certain way, in a way that uh, eliminated the Klan. Um, so I'll just say this here real quick. Uh, there's a, a book, I can't think who the author is right now, in my father's house there are many mansions uh, which talks about uh, policing in the South and so forth and so on during the Reconstruction era. So I want to just hit on that real quick and then move on. Um, See, what happened during the Civil War and during the Reconstruction era is that when troops were coming through those areas, the black troops, the black soldiers, what did they do? They tore down all the jails. They let, they let, they let the inmates of those jails go, you know, because they saw the jails as part of the slave system, you know. Okay. And what did they do when they when they when they achieved some semblance of political power like they did in South Carolina, or some some definitive political power like they did in South Carolina? What they did was they controlled who policed their communities and how their communities were policed. No more slave patrols, no more petty wagons, you know, uh, and they had a democratic process, you know. They elected people. You know, uh, the police was not an occupying army. You know, they elected people. So I just wanted to get that out the way, you know. So I always tell people that one time we had community control of the police during Reconstruction. We haven't had it since, all right? Uh, prisons, the 13th Amendment. Slavery is abolished except for people... Convicted. At first, I used to think of talking about convicted felons. No, people convicted. People convicted. So what they did, now check it out. They abolished shadow slavery, people as property. That was abolished. There's no, there's no question about that. You, you could no longer sell people from an auction block. But they expanded slavery because they said, except for anybody convicted. They didn't say except for black people convicted, anybody convicted. So they, so what they did, they gave penal slavery a legal status in the United States that previously it did not have. It did not have, you know. And so now uh, the convict lease system is legal. And what is the convict lease system? The convict lease system is a way of getting black people back into slavery without selling them. So you're a vagabond. You don't have no place to stay. 
you know the vagabond laws were not eliminated in the South until the 60s? And it was mainly the hippies that got it eliminated. But that's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> that's a whole other story. That's a, that's, that's a whole other story. But now, um, so you had a situation here where a black person who could not prove their residence walking down the road could be imprisoned and sentenced to labor. And so they created what they call workhouses. You know, they had people. Uh, they they had rock rock quarries. They had people building roads. They had people laying down railroad tracks. All this here was penal slavery. So a new. So I'm I'm trying to make it real clear. A new form of slavery was brought into being. Penal slavery. And penal slavery meant not only was you a slave of the state, but that if you got convicted of a felony, now here's where the felony comes in at, then you lost all your citizenship rights. You became what is known in most of the southern states as civilly dead. That's the word that they use. When I went to the penitentiary back in 1961 in Missouri, I found out, and Missouri used to be a slave state, I found out that I was civilly dead because it's in the statute. It means that... Uh, no, no civil rights at all, Don't, not even a civil existence. So you, you're saying that the people who were in Tucker's Farm and Parchment, Mississippi, and places like that, and Angola and, and, and Louisiana, that these people are civilly dead. And that means that they have no rights which the state is legally bound to respect. That's what it means. And, and it stayed like that until the 60s. Stayed like that until the sixties. Now, what is it like now? It, it only changed in the sixties uh, uh, in terms of certain civil rights prisoners were were, were given. You know, uh, a lot of them were taken back. So now you still have penal slavery, but now it is more ominous than it's ever been because now you have over four million people over four million people, most of them black, who are either in jails or in prisons. Who are either in jails or in prisons, who have no right to vote, who are civilly dead, the ones that are in prison, and the ones that are in jails too, for the most part, you know. Yeah. And so, this is a situation that uh, is Well, you have a a, a, a a labor supply. You have a labor supply that is used by the state however they want to use it. So that means that these people can be forced to work in, the, in private industries for little or no for little or no wages, because what they would get what they get cannot be called a wage. You know, uh, prison industries have always existed. For example, most states in prisons make license plates. So that's that's always existed, you know. Uh, the UAW tried to change that situation during the uh, during the sixties. It did not happen, you know. Uh, most prisons make a lot of furniture and whatnot that's used in uh, 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 all your state institutions, like schools and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. But now, what we have since, let's say, the nineteen seventies, well, the early nineteen eighties, mm -hmm. when Reagan came in, because it really started under Reagan. What, what we have since then is a situation where prison industry has created, has been created. Mm -hmm. well, you now have a, a prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. You know, Angela talks about this in her book on abolishing prisons, you know, a prison industrial complex. Now, what does it, that mean exactly? That means that now prisons are, more, for the most part, privately owned. Mm -hmm. That means that the monopoly capitalists have taken over the prison system. Mm -hmm. And they are operating it strictly on the basis of profit. Now, what does that mean? That means that it is in their economic interest to increase the prison population. And so how does that mean that the police are being used? That means the police are being used to, at all costs, 
fill up the prisons. Yep. If you have to torture people and get them to confess the crimes that they did not commit, like they've done in Chicago, fill up the prisons. Yep. You know, if you have to create a, a, a draconian drug laws and, and, and create a fake war against drugs, fill up the prisons. Yep. You know, uh, use crack cocaine to fill up the prisons. You know, yeah. Yeah. So that's what you got going on, mm -hmm. and 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 that's because now it's profit. So. And they profit off of the prisoners in so many different ways. You can't call a prisoner unless you get hooked into a phone company. Mm -hmm. And the phone company that you get hooked into is going to be a phone company that the prison mm. has got a link, has got to hook up with. Yep. You know, name me anything. Prisoners now have to pay for their own upkeep. So if you are working in one of these prison industries and you're making a certain amount of money, you have to pay for your own upkeep. Mm -hmm. So that way they don't have to give you nothing. Right. They don't have to pay you nothing. Yeah. You know, Or let's say you, uh, uh, you come into an inheritance. A, a le you get a legacy. You, somebody in your family dies and they leave you uh, a few million dollars. Guess what? If you're in jail, they're going to charge you. You got to pay out of that money. Yeah, you got to pay out of that money. So, so you have penal slavery in the United States right now under that's being operated by monopoly capitalists because the prison industry, I mean the, the prison system has been privatized. Privatized. Uh, it's ran by corporations. Departments of Corrections are ran by corporations. Yeah. They are responsible for the food. They're responsible for everything. And so the kind of food that you eat in there, mm -hmm. uh, they've created a whole market around this stuff, you know. It used to be that if you were in prison, you ate the food that was produced by the prison. Yep. They, had their own, they, they had their own hogs and their own cattle and their own fields. They had, you know, they had like farms mm -hmm. that they grew their own stuff. Today, that's not, that's, that's not, the, that's not the, today, they buy stuff. You know, they, 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 they have a whole industry that yeah. produces foods, you know, in, in little plastic bags and stuff and whatnot, just for prisons, mm. you know. Yeah. You know, Frank, so much of this history that you're sharing today, we don't know about, right? We don't grow up learning this history from our Probably public school system, especially especially in Chicago, <laughs> you know. Um, can you share with me, and I think I, I think I know what the Propaganda of History chapter is about, but can you share a little bit about that chapter yeah, and sure. why is this history invisibilized? Well, uh, what Du Bois uh, uh, does is he documents uh, what is really a, uh, uh, a concept that I first heard formulated by um, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And it is that the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class. How does that come about? It comes about through the educational system. Du Bois documents this like nobody I've never known before mm -hmm. in, this, in this book. Because what he does, he shows how the ruling class of this country, and particularly not just the planners, but the ruling class of this country, how they created a historiography that completely denied the existence of Reconstruction as a democratic revolutionary process. Completely denied it. That, 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 that lied, that lied and demonized that period of history where it made black folks look like uh, they were childlike, they 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 were uh, grossly ignorant, and 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 to give them democratic rights, to give them uh, uh, those kinds of powers, was like the worst thing that could have happened. And then what they did with that was that they completely made a mockery of civilization. Completely made a mockery of it. Mm -hmm. So, according to the propaganda of history, the Reconstruction in the South, in Black Reconstruction in the South, didn't create no public education. It didn't create nothing. It created savagery, you know. It, uh, they were running around raping people, you know, and the crime rate went up, you know. It was a disgrace. They took cherished institutions of the Deep South and, 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 and reduced them to nothing, mm -hmm. 
That's what the propaganda of history does. It denies the very existence of the Reconstruction era as a democratic existence, mm -hmm. as the most democratic period. Instead of them making it the most democratic period in American history, they make it the worst period. Mm -hmm. It was it was it was it was the nadar mm -hmm. yeah. of American history. It was the lowest point. And that is yeah. intentional, right? Like that is completely intentional to make that, that history. That was done in Harvard. Yeah. That was yeah. done in Yale. That was done in Princeton. Mm -hmm. That was done in every major educational institution throughout this country. Every textbook that was written was written like this. John Brown was a crazed demon. Frederick Douglass didn't exist. And Harriet Tubman didn't exist. You didn't even see them in the history books. Mm -hmm. I came up in this system. I came up in this educational system during the 50s. I was in grade school and stuff back then, you know, and so and then I, you know, I went to high school in '57. No, that was not there. We didn't get none of that. Mm -hmm. We did not get any of that, you know. Yeah. There was no such thing as black history in the United States until the '60s. Now there was black history among black people, you know. We 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 you know we wrote our own history. You know, we had we had our W. B. Du Bois's, we had our J. A. Rogers, we had we had them people. You know, we had a Carter G. Woodson. But uh, we had Ida B. Wells, you know. But they did not acknowledge that in public schools. Mm -hmm. The only person I remember being acknowledged in public schools was Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. They had, they, uh, I think, in every public school that ever existed, they showed this film on Booker T. Washington about the Atlanta Compromise. We all knew about that <laughs> because that was about cast your buckets down where you are. Don't mess with this social system. Mm -hmm. Let it stay intact. Let's be obedient servants, you know. Let's serve. Let's serve. Our thing is about serving, you know. That's what Booker T. Washington said, yeah. Wow. So very briefly, um, can you tell us why is it important for us as organizers in this political moment that we're in right now, why is it important for us to, to read this book or to know about the content well, we, we, of this we book? Need to, we need to, number one, we need to know about our, our, our revolutionary traditions. Otherwise, we run into the danger of seeing in the oppression of our people only the misery of that oppression. Du Bois brings out the revolutionary side of that oppression. It shows us that uh, we are a revolutionary people and not just an oppressed people. And it shows us that uh, the gains that were made has set the agenda of the black liberation movement. It set the agenda. You know, These are the things that we're struggling for now. But are we just struggling for a restoration? Or are we just struggling to go back and pick up a period of history that is gone? No. No, we're not we're not doing that. And Du Bois doesn't suggest that we do that. Now we need to change the whole story. You know, we need to change the whole story. You know. Now we need to see that our oppressors are the people who control and run this capitalistic system for their own personal greed and benefit, and that's who we need to overturn. And we're not gonna have no kind of reconstruction, no kind of new day in America until we do that. You know, In the meantime, uh, what we're doing is we're fighting to get more organizing space in order to get that accomplished. And this book tells us what organizing spaces we got to fight for. We got to fight for the full restoration of our democratic rights knowing that we're never going to get the full aspiration of it, but we can get the organizing space to deal the blows to this system that we need to deal to get it out of the way because it's become an obstacle to human history. So again, the book is Black Reconstruction in America. We've said it once, we'll say it again. We should read this book. We should definitely, <laughs> definitely read this book. Um, and you read it with your people, create a book circle, create a study group, whatever it is. But this is a really key book. Um, and thank you, Frank, for bringing more insight into it. I learned so much. Um, I'd love to have you close us out with reading your favorite passage. Yeah, it's actually at the end of the book. The Unending Tragedy of Reconstruction is the utter inability of the American mind to grasp its real significance, its national and worldwide implications. It was vain for Sumner and Stevens to hammer in the ears of the people that this problem involved the very foundation 
in the air in the in the I'm sorry, that this problem involved the very foundation of American democracy, both political and economic. We are still too blind and infatuated to conceive of the emancipation of the labor, laboring class in half the nation as a revolution comparable to the upheavals in France in the past and in Russia, Spain, India, and China today. We were worried when the beginnings of this experiment cost 18 millions of dollars and quite a gas when a debt of 225 million was involved, including waste and theft. We apparently expected that this social upheaval was going to be accomplished with peace, honesty, and efficiency, and that the planners were going quietly to surrender the right to live on the labor of black folk after 250 years of habitual exploitation. And it seems to America a proof of inherent race inferiority that four million slaves did not completely emancipate themselves in 80 years in the midst of nine million bitter enemies and insufficient public opinion of the whole nation. If the reconstruction of the southern states from slavery to free labor and from aristocracy to industrial democracy had been conceived as a major national program of America whose accomplishment at the, at the price was well worth the effort, we should be living today in a different world. The attempt to make black men American citizens was in a certain sense all a failure, but a splendid failure. It did not fail where it was expected to fail. It was Athanasius, he's talking Latin here, Athanasius contra mundum, with black, with back to the well, outnumbered 10 to one, with all the wealth and all the opportunity and all the world against him, and only in his hands and heart, and heart the conscience of a great and just cause fighting the battle of all the oppressed and despised humanity of every race and color against the massed hirelings of religion, science, education, law, and brute force. For he has appalled this wretched man, such as few men can claim, deep down below a prison yard, naked for greater shame. He lies with fetters on each foot, wrapped in a sheet of flame. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to the Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.